Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Do you think that women should cover their heads in church? Here's the text. Here's a part of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the English Standard Version. Quote, If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. It's right there. It's in the text, black and white. Do you have an argument as to why this particular command no longer applies in 2019 America? Probably you don't have an argument, but that might be okay, right? You might think, surely some other theologians and biblical scholars have done this work at some point. We aren't all just ignoring this verse for no good reason. The fact is, we assume that someone has worked this out because it now seems ludicrous to us to require women to wear hats or bonnets or scarves in church. 
we trust that the work has been done. And I believe it has been done, by the way. I don't think that that is an irrational assumption. But what I personally think is going on with the question of scripture and homosexuality, and relatedly scripture and gender roles, is that we are simply earlier on in the timeline than we are with the question of head coverings. The good Dr. Daniel Kirk is going to drop some serious scholarship on us today, but 50 years from now, it might be the case that almost no one even bothers to think about the arguments you will hear today. But right now, we need them. It's still very much a live question. And this topic is similar to last week's topic, patriarchy, which will eventually become clear if it isn't already. I was going to space out these episodes because they were similar, but I put it to a vote on the You Have Permission Facebook group, and this was the clear frontrunner. So, give the people what they want, I guess. Our guest today is Daniel Kirk. Daniel's dissertation advisor was Richard Hayes, a very big deal in the world of New Testament studies. I think that Hayes has the best, most compassionate argument against homosexual inclusion out of all the arguments I've heard. And we will hear Daniel explain that argument, but we will also hear why the student has diverged from the master, so to speak. Now, this episode is better listened to after listening to the patriarchy episode from last week, since Daniel's central argument revolves around patriarchy in the ancient world. And Carolyn Custis James just gave us so much good context, but you don't have to listen to that one first. This interview was recorded to be able to stand on its own. But I want to be clear about one thing up top. I am myself gay-affirming in my theology, and I am convinced by the argument that Daniel lays out in this episode. That's why I wanted to have him on. I do think it's the best argument among the many that I've heard, some of which did not convince me, even though I wanted to be convinced of them based on my own intuitions. But you as a listener might not agree with this main argument today. In fact, if you finish the episode and you are not convinced by Daniel, but the Richard Hayes argument is something you find compelling, then that's great. And in my mind, that is serious progress. And I don't say it's progress because it's more liberal, but rather because I think Hayes does a much better job with the actual text of the Bible than most of his peers. Alternatively, you might be kind of agnostic on the issue of homosexuality, or you might be in a church where there's a variety of views on this issue. Everybody is welcome to this discussion. Personally, I am all for people and groups and churches taking their time with this question and having grace with each other as much as possible. Now, if you yourself are an LGBTQ person, then there are separate dynamics at play. Your own health and well-being need to be considered as a first priority. And my sincere hope is that this episode will be helpful to you in some way. For the rest of us, which is statistically the majority, let's just think seriously about this issue while giving each other lots of grace on either side of the question as we do so. Daniel Kirk, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Daniel Kirk is your given name or how people refer to you, but your pen yes. name, your scholarly name in a long and confusing tradition is J.R. <laughs> Daniel Kirk. This is correct, yes. I, I always thought that superfluous initials were going to be like my my ticket to glory. <laughs> no, I think it's a pretty flooded market, man. I don't think that's going to... Yeah, I don't think you're going to stand out. 
So we have a very uh, high. Well, that's uh, well. You can't just go on after that. You just you've just destroyed my world. <laughs> Let me give you a few minutes to uh, reinflate your sense of self. So we have a pretty big task today. We are going to try and treat the question of homosexual inclusion fairly fully. Not the arguments from emotion, not the arguments from story or the arguments from, I guess, reason and experience will come into it. But we are Mm -hmm. really looking at the text and we're really placing the text historically. And then we're using our reason to ask questions about what we want to do with that once it's properly historically placed. Let's start out with the problematic and relevant passages of the Bible. We're going to start with the scripture here. Which passages are we talking about? Which ones do serious biblical scholars actually admit our references to homosexual sex? Leviticus 18, it's an abomination for a man to lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Uh, and that's echoed a couple chapters later in Leviticus in the Holiness Code. Uh, and then everyone pretty much will say uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is what pe- people used to talk about that, but it doesn't really matter. And I actually want to say, you know, that, let's not give – just keep that on the table. Good. Well, um, we'll come back to that. But the reason that people yeah. say it doesn't matter is because later in one of the prophets, an explanation is given for Sodom and Gomorrah, which is – that they don't care for the poor, right? That's the basic argument. Right. Yeah, that's part of it. And I think another part of it is just that because it is this situation of like violence and rape that, you know, people want to say, well, let's put that off the table because there's so much that's going on that's wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, it's a complicated situation. Yeah. yeah it's, I, but actually, I think the violence and rape is exactly why we should keep it on the table. And I think it opens up some other issues. So, so there's, there's that from, um, from the Old Testament. And then, uh, in the New Testament, there's Romans one, where Paul, he's, he's on this whole thing about, uh, people rejecting God. And then he comes to this part where he talks about women abandoning the natural function of the woman, uh, or man, uh, and then, it says in the same way men uh, exchange the natural function of the woman and burned in their desires uh, toward one another. I didn't get that that exactly right, but We're familiar, that's yeah. it. then in First uh, Corinthians six, Paul just has this list of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. One of those, the Greek word is arsenokoites, which seems to translate to men who to screw other men, uh, and that can either be literal or figurative in in ancient uh, Greece and Rome, but people tend to think that that's talking about some sort of same-sex encounter. And the ambiguity there is because he literally invents a word by putting two words together, correct? Correct. So it's not a word that's common in the Greek lexicon. Right. And then there's another word after it, malakos, which literally means um, softy, and that has at times been translated as referring to same-sex sex as well. Um, people sometimes suggested that those two words together mean the active and passive partner. Right. Um, so that. But that's not that's not agreed. But everybody agrees it's a passage that you need to deal with. First Timothy, there's a passage that says pretty much the same thing as the the First Corinthians text. There's a there's a couple more where maybe a word is used or, or echoed, but that's really that's really the meat of it. And with all of that, Romans one a lot of times gets more attention because it's the only one that actually are like places it within a theological narrative. Yeah, there's an argument in Romans 1. Right. Right. As right. opposed to in- included in a list of other things that then it gets tacked on to the argument. In Romans 1, the argument is about something and this is given as a particular example of it. Right. Although um it's also important to note that in none of the passages is the fact that it's a problem argued for. Mm. Right? It's assumed that same-sex sex is a problem, and it's used to illustrate other things. Right. 
Which, of course, uh, given the context, I'm sure we're going to get to this, Paul didn't need to make an argument because basically everybody was on board. Right. Okay, so we've got these texts. They do speak with one voice insofar as they speak with one attitude. There are no passages that seem to say it would be great or perfectly fine. If they ever do speak of it, of homosexual sex, it is in a negative sense. Nonetheless, both you and Richard Hayes, your former teacher who who is more conservative on this issue, would argue there are a lot of conservative arguments that attempt to use the biblical text to make an argument against homosexuality that actually fail the text. They don't read the text correctly. For instance, there are arguments that seem to place homosexual sin in a category of its own, in a kind of mm-hmm. a high category. What what we do to the body, we do to the temple of God. There are sort of a, mm-hmm. a couple verses where you can it can seem like a hierarchy of sin. And certainly right. in our Christian culture in America, we – Many of us have acted as if it is at the top of the hierarchy of sin. So can you address those kind of arguments? Richard Hayes does focus on Romans 1 as one of his major places, but it's also possible to read Romans 1 and and really highlight the idea like, well— this is kind of the the epitome of anti-creation, yeah. right? Like, this was bad, so God handed them over. This was bad, so God handed them over. And then, as if worshiping animals wasn't bad enough, then, you know, men started porking men. Like, right. this is just, like, the, you know, the, the argument from nature that you know, sex should only be between a man and a woman is so obvious that it's only with the most debased humanity that God has finally given over. Like, I think there's a way of reading Romans one where the idea is this is the culmination of human failure. Um, even though the text itself goes on to say, so God gave them over to, and then lists like, you know, 40 more uh, things right. that most of us would be hard pressed to not identify with at least, at least some of. Yeah. So in the Rome first Corinthians six, you know, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? So you are simply not in the family of God at all if you're engaged in, in same-sex relations. And and Hayes is like, no, of course you can be a Christian and be and be gay. You know, for him, it's like that's like asking, can you be envious and be a Christian? Yes, of of course you can. That you know, that was the example he gives. Yeah. Can you be Christian and be a member of the church? Hayes would say yes. I mean, can you be gay and be a member of the church? And Hayes would say yes. All right, because you know that's just, this is just part of of who we are as, as humans, even though he thinks it's fallen humans. Uh, whereas a lot of other people would be like, no, this is a sure sign that, that you're on the outs. Now, of course, there is a wide range of spectrums on the left. There are a lot of different kinds of people who come to a gay-affirming theology, and yeah. there are a lot of different kinds of arguments. So I don't want to disparage anybody, but for me, there are arguments on the left that seem like they try to minimize the attitudes of Paul and the biblical writers and sort of maybe explain them away as he didn't really condemn this stuff. He's just condemning rape. He's just condemning sex with men and boys. And through my reading, and I I believe we, we share this view, it doesn't hold up to a close scrutiny of the text. And so while those things are bad, uh, I don't prefer that line of argument. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. I, so there's a few examples of, specific context within which 
um, male same-sex sex might happen in the ancient world. For instance, a man might have sex with his male slaves. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. In the Greek world, there was a tradition of pederasty where men would have sexual relationships with adolescent boys. But in the Roman tradition, that was actually frowned upon. I think it gets a little bit dicey um, trying to say, well, Paul is just talking about these very exploitative relationships. I think it's slippery in terms of historical context, and I think it there's also an implicit assumption that I don't think is valid, which is – you know, if Paul knew about like mutually self-giving same-sex relationships, he'd be all of over that. Of course, he'd be all okay with that. Yeah, he just didn't the- even know. You mentioned that arsenokointes is a word that Paul seems to have made up. It comes. It probably came from Leviticus eighteen, where it says that you know an an arsen a man shouldn't you know have coites uh, you know lie with uh, another man. He probably smashed those words together. I think. Paul sees the action as inherently problematic, and yeah. uh, I think he's. We're going to talk about why the, he why he might have thought it was problematic, um, even though he never he doesn't tell us. But I I think that he sees the the very fact of a man having sex with a man as inherently problematic. There's a lot that we're bringing in terms of a modern assumption of what uh, a viable like you know, partnered sexual relationship is that Paul probably never crossed his mind um, in terms of his own frames of judgment. It seems like these these more liberal arguments or ostensibly liberal arguments that want to keep the text intact actually have a kind of a motivation, which I understand, which is like, hey, people who have a really high regard for the text, maybe who are even Mm. biblical inerrantists who believe that the Bible contains no errors they might even be able to get behind this if you know if this argument works out i understand right. that but uh i think that as we'll find out later uh we already reject inerrancy for women and slavery or many of us right. do well we all do for slavery and many of us do for women and so we're not actually giving that up in the final analysis in my opinion yep and part of what we're going to discover you know people will often bring up um, slavery and women's issues as like parallel issues right. to to you know same sex inclusion and debate about you know whether that how much that analogy fits. I'm here to tell you right now on this very podcast, it's not <laughs> simply an analogy; it is actually the exact same issue yeah. because patriarchy in the ancient world is not just about men being in charge of women it is a whole systemic um, set of power relations about who's in charge of whom in what context and the very places that we reject um, because they're talking about slavery and because they're demanding women's submission those are embed those are embodying the very patriarchal system that the ancients used to build their sexual mores on as well. So if you think yeah, if you don't think that people should be slaves to other people, if you think men are equal to to women, then you basically have no standing left to simply keep reaffirming biblical sexual ethics. Daniel, you're how are they going to buy the cow if they get the milk for free, man? Sorry, I keep I keep getting It's ahead. okay. Sorry. So before we get to your argument, uh, which is the one I happen to agree with. There there might be someone listening to this today. I'm sure there will be people who will not end up agreeing with you and I. What? But, oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I would still consider it 
a benefit for them to hear Richard Hayes' argument because I think it is such a better argument on the non-affirming side or the traditional side than so many other arguments. Let's talk about his argument first and then we'll hear where you differ. So Hayes' argument, to, to sort of kick it off here for you, as I understand it, is primarily about the concept of idolatry in Romans 1. So Paul is setting up people sinned, God let them go with free will, he gave them the do, you know, the just fruits of their actions, and this is a particularly vivid example of idolatry is homosexual sex. What else is there to the argument? It, it is about idolatry, but it's also more systemic. Hmm. So it's it's not simply that everybody who is having sex with a same-sex person uh, at some point in their past gave up worshiping God and started right, worshiping right. something else, right? So it's a group, like that, it's a group disease. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. In in a way, um, Romans one eighteen and following then is read as like as an anti creation narrative, right? There's all these echoes of Genesis one, and you know Genesis one culminates really in the formation of male, male and female God, God made them. So instead of recognizing the creator in the creation, you worship the creature rather than the creator. So God gives you over. Um, the other thing about that is that God giving them over, it, it it's, it's, oh, it's a judgment almost in itself where, you know, it's not like a, a setup for something else. It's not like if you are engaged in same same sex activity, then you will incur the wrath of God. It's like this this whole action is its own anti reward is, right. is the language that he uses. And then the other thing I think is important is he he draws attention to the fact that this this whole argument takes a turn in Romans two one yes. where Paul goes, therefore you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Yes. So he recognizes that the point of this argument rhetorically in Romans is not to tell us what the worst thing is. It's to get the reader to go, oh yeah, that's the worst thing, so that Paul can go, oh hey, mister, yeah, that's the worst thing. You're guilty of the same stuff, and you need to knock it off. Yeah, he calls it like uh, a set him up, knock him down move, somewhere, yes, somewhere in that chapter. Yeah, an exegetical sting operation. Yeah. <laughs> that's way nerdier, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that's really important, right? So, Hayes is saying that Paul is not saying All you good people who mostly do everything right and who have a really good sense of what's going on in the world, when you see gay people, you know something's wrong. It's more like, look, this is a fallen creation. There are all Mm -hmm. kinds of symptoms of it. On Hayes' reading of Paul, it's one symptom among numerous symptoms, none of which any of us skates clean on, Mm -hmm. right? And so that can kind of help mitigate some of the historical bigotry around this particular issue in the Christian community. Yeah. Yep. There's a nice um, quote from him that kind of sums it up. He says, homosexuality is one among many tragic signs that we are a broken people alienated from God's loving purpose. Yeah. I mean, this is the, th- I mean, I think one of the reasons why Hayes' argument has been uh, so compelling to a number of people, um, it actually starts, if you haven't read it, um, you should, it, it starts with him talking about his friend Gary, uh, right. who, who um, was a gay man who died of AIDS. And, you know, Gary's story is sort of woven into the chapter. It, there's a lot of personal wrestling, the, the compassionate conservative, like this is, this is as good as you can do in articulating a non-affirming position in a way that keeps it in its appropriate place, that gives the maximum affirmation of LGBT civil rights and belonging in the church. Right. 
why is this a tribal identity marker for conservative Christianity? Mm. It's something that's mentioned six times in the whole Bible. And I honestly think that one of the reasons why is because it doesn't cost anything. Mm. You've got empowered men, straight men, um, who want to not have anything in their life look like serving the poor or avoiding war or like the, the stuff that is completely antithetical to our capitalistic military industrial complex. Very costly. And they, you know, yeah. They want to build, you know, large corporations and be the CEOs. Um, so what's going to make us distinct? Well, here's a thing, right? This, this homosexuality thing. Well, that's, that's the culture out there and, God says it's wrong. So if you want to be a real Christian, you know you you can't have that. Um, you don't even have to. You don't even have anything. to focus that on straight white men. I mean, it's just it's just straight people, which is by all accounts ninety five plus percent of humanity. And so yeah. it it doesn't cost the straight women either, unless their kid is gay, right? I mean, it really doesn't cost anyone anything unless it's a family member or really a loved one to yeah. to vault this up. It's also got a bunch of external qualities, you know, effeminacy. There is a kind of a natural gag reflex that people have towards gender amorphism and gender fluidity. I mean, there's a lot of things line up. It's very it's yeah. psychologically powerful and psychologically yeah, yeah. convenient and economically convenient, right? So, yeah. it's a lot of things. And and I don't yeah. actually give I don't actually judge people personally for those starting positions. I think they are inherited almost entirely. It's useful to think about, especially in the context of Hayes, who says, look, there's not a good textual argument to elevate it. So we're elevating it for some other reason. The, the conclusion is begins to drive the convert the conversation and the evidence, and that just that's just human, by the way. That's yeah. not a, that's actually not a that's not a slight. This is what humans do. Right. Um. Read read some Jonathan Haidt. Now, before right. we get to your argument and your response to Hayes, there is a little interlude I like to do about politics. You you hinted at it, civil rights for LGBTQ oh, yeah. people. This is where all three of us are in alignment. So let's let's walk through this through Hayes' argument. If Hayes' argument is that homosexual attraction and activity are a broad scale result of a fallen world and not, as is sometimes assumed, uh, a particular marker of individual depravity of persons, then why would we as Christians in a pluralistic society with freedom of expression, freedom of religion, force those moral codes on people who do not share them with us? So that he has a pretty effective and simple argument for, look, gay marriage for sure. It's a civil institution. It's, it's not to mm -hmm. be resisted as a particular kind of sin corrupting the nation. You know, and for me, the reason you know, how this became a no-brainer, I was uh, listening to – Miroslav Volf came out to um, San Francisco. I think it was around 2008. And so we, we were just asking you – know, he was being asked about how to engage in politics, and he gave the most crazy answer. He's like, well, this is what I think should guide our pro politics. We should ask two questions. What does it look like for me to do to my neighbor what I would want done for me, and what does it look like for me to love my neighbor as myself? And it's like, what? That's it. And but that's it. But you really have to discipline your mind to answer that question because yeah, you can answer it you can answer it in self-serving ways like well, if if I wasn't a Christian, I would want the Christians to create laws to keep me from inadvertently offending against the law of God, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like right. please shut down the liquor store on Sunday so that I don't go drinking rather than heading to church. Um no. Like I'm a I'm a good kosher breaking Christian despite some of my Jewish heritage. 
what would I think about like the 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 Muslim Jewish coalition coming together yeah. to get the to forbid the selling of pork products in America so that the God of Abraham won't be offended and rise up and cast us out out of the land? Right, like right. no, thank you, right? Like yeah. no, this is not my religious conviction. I don't want my life driven by yours. Okay, so what it means for me to love my neighbor as myself is to free my neighbor to experience all the the joys and happinesses and pleasures and whatever else they want to. That that the only reason I'm not doing it is because I'm regulating it on a on a religious basis. So Daniel, we are ready to hear your argument. What is it about Hayes's argument? Your PhD dissertation advisor, <laughs> the the servant. Killing the master, challenging the master, <laughs> not killing him. What is it about it that you find uncompelling? All right. The academic Oedipal uh, complex rises up as I kill my father. Uh, for <laughs> Okay. Um, so there's, there's a whole cluster of things that I think we need to interrogate about uh, Hayes' argument. Let's get a table of contents here. One of them is, even though Paul seems to be alluding to it, do we really use Leviticus to define the morality of the church? Right. We mix our fabrics. We don't combine. We combine milk and meat. I mean, there's a lot of things in the Holiness Code. I'm not saying Leviticus is irrelevant. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Leviticus. Right. Okay. Right. So this is my my take as a Christian. We start with Jesus in the New Testament, and we read the Old Testament through that. Yeah. So yeah, Hayes would agree with that, and he would say yes. And Paul is bringing this in and affirming it, so we should agree with it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna question that. I'm gonna also question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to interrogate the question: Why? Why uh, are um, same-sex relationships problematic for biblical writers, perhaps? And that's where I'm going to bring in the and start asking the patriarchy question, which then is going to mean we have to ask the question: Does Paul, who's really our New Testament writer we're dealing with here, does Paul give any evidence of sharing in his culture's anti-female patriarchal posture in his condemnation of same-sex intercourse? And I'm going to suggest that the answer is yes, that if you know what you're looking for, you can find it. So that's going to be all like suggesting that the exegesis, which just means biblical interpretation, that like when you're just like trying to understand what the text says, that there's more to it than Hayes like puts on the table. So I'm going to end up agreeing with Dale Martin, who says uh, he's a New Testament professor at Yale. He's also gay. Um, and he's he also says, been yeah. on Depolarize and will be uh, on this show. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He says, yeah, Paul agree. Paul thinks that homosexuality is wrong for reasons that we should disagree with. Uh, and I think that he's exactly right. It's a nice, clear way of saying it, yeah. Then I'm going to come back around. Hayes, in his book, uses a three metaphors for tying together the moral vision of the New Testament, community, cross, and new creation. And I'm going to suggest that once we've problematized the the just the exegesis of the text, the interpretation of the text, that when we bring back these lenses, when we start thinking about what does it mean for us now, given who God is making us in Christ, to 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 wrestle with the issue of of 
same-sex relationships, that these lenses actually push us toward an affirming position rather than simply telling us, well, this is how you have to live with what the church has always said. So if that was the table of contents, what more do we need to say about your first point, Leviticus? Uh, Okay, Leviticus, just briefly, I want to say – Okay, there's a lot of stuff in Leviticus 18 that most of us would agree is wrong in terms of like, please don't sleep with your mom. That's right. like, we all feel the gross, right? Yeah. We all feel the gross. Um, Leviticus, it also is the same chapter that with everything else it says, um, says don't sleep with your wife when she's, ha- when she's having her period. Mm. And if, oh, and you can get stoned for that, by the way, right? So like, you can't just say like, here it is and leave it at that. Um, you need to make another argument about why we should um, agree with this particular point in Leviticus. Um, the other thing is like that abomination language. You know, that is language that's used um, elsewhere in in the Pentateuch to talk about stuff like eating shellfish. So the idea that it's so bad or has this huge punishment or whatever, like the, you. Those aren't arguments that right. that actually hold up in terms of the history of how Christians interpret the Bible. Oh, oh, you get you get killed if you have same sex relationship. Yeah, you also get that for for breaking the Sabbath. What did you do on Saturday? <laughs> um, right, like yeah, yeah. So yeah, it, it was considered serious, and it was part of their uh, identity marker. The other thing I want to say, and we're going to get back to this when we talk about when we come to the end and talk about community and like some of my positive hermeneutic is. All of these things are how Israel was distinguishing itself through its purity codes as a nation distinct from the Gentiles. Yeah, set apart. So so the fact that like after Cornelius and all this stuff that the the Gentiles and Galatians, that Romans, that the Gentiles get to be part of the people of God without becoming Jewish, I think it creates um, an assumption against – priestly purity codes continuing to define the identity of the people of God. This is exactly the part of the Bible that the the Cornelius episode is written to make the church wrestle with and say, yeah, we can't keep defining ourselves in those in those same Yeah, and all the stuff that Paul talking about meat sacrifice to idols and all all that stuff is is tied up with this of like these things that had become totally normal for Jews in his age, he's like that it's not the divider anymore. That purity stuff yep. is not. And Jesus also pushes way back on the purity form of morality throughout the Gospels. Yep. yep. Let's bridge to the question of patriarchy. Yeah, this is the um, big one. This is the big one, right? That that passage in Leviticus, you, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman, right? This is you know detestable or, or whatever. Um, why not? What's wrong with that? I'm smiling because um, I love the simplicity of just asking that question. I love it. And, and it's, it's a question that deserves an answer. Robert Gagnon wrote a big book on – I think it's called The Bible and Homosexual Practice. Or, and there seems to be a thread in there that assumes like sort of a biological argument, right? Like the parts don't fit and like biologically this is the wrong thing to do with, with this kind of body. Now – it's interesting that that's never said anywhere. Well, all we're doing here is we're, we're asking questions. And so I want to suggest that the reason why you're not allowed to um, lie with a man as one lies with a woman is that that in a patriarchal culture, that would have been considered inherently degrading to a man because 
you would be treating him like a woman, which means treating him as less than the greater thing that he is. Yeah, to be penetrated is feminine and feminine is bad. Therefore, to be penetrated is bad. Exactly. Well, it's not bad if you're a woman. Okay. Right? Yeah. I, and but, uh, for instance, in, in Greek culture, or is it Roman, if it was found out that some man was having sex with other men, as long as he was the penetrator, that didn't give him any stigma at all. That didn't hurt his reputation. If it was rumored that he was the receiver, that was right. a ding on his social status. Right. So the easiest thing to think about patriarchy is like men men are better than women. Men get to rule over women, right? Yeah. And that's that's part of um, how it is. And and if you read – okay, so, so uh, Aristotle is great with this. Aristotle's politics where he's telling you how the whole like – you know, nation state is supposed to be established, but he starts with the house and it's like most basic unit, those that can't live without each other, um, a husband and a wife, um, and a master and a servant and parents and children. And in each relation, there is one who rules and one who's ruled. And in every instance, it'll only be go well. If the one that's superior rules, those who are inferior, those who are superior, then he goes on to say are the ones who have foresight and vision. And then the ones who are under them execute the vision, right? So, so, so what's just happened there is like, you know, if you know this from the household codes in the New Testament, all those places where it says, you know, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, yeah, you know, may, that, yeah. uh, so what you're seeing in the New Testament is it is part of the cultural heritage and implicit in the New Testament and explicit outside of it is that each of these pairs of relations is talking about someone who's superior to the other yeah, okay? or, or in power over the other. It's like yeah. how to set up a good army regiment. It's kind of like that. Yeah. If you but, have the privates questioning the colonel all day long and nothing's going to get done, this is how you run an army. This is how you run a household. This is how you run a city. Right. Right. But the other thing is if you have a senator serving as a private in the Roman army, that's inherently – that's that's wrong too. Mm. Why? Because senators are superior Romans than the citizens or the hired mercenaries who are serving as privates. So it's – so when there is a power differential, it's not just because you have a different role to play. This is – exegesis that was invented in the 20th century when people could no longer say that the reason that women can't teach is because they're inferior to men. Once people could no longer say women are inferior to men, a new interpretation arose which said, oh, they're not inferior. They just have a different role. Prior to that, the reason why you have a different role and you're not allowed to teach and you're not allowed authority is because you're more prone to be deceived. You are simply right? inferior. Yeah, straight you're up. You're simply inferior in in your capacity to reason, in, your, in the strength of your body, in whether your body can control your mind or whether you're enslaved to your passions. This is a hierarchy in every sense of the word okay man you know what i would love right now is some quotes from uh people that were influencing paul or around that time do you have anything handy that you can read just to give us examples of this reasoning uh so from aristotle and his politics um you know he just says bluntly and he's talking about the relationship between genders among you know, different species and he says specifically as between the male and female the former, men, is by nature superior and ruler, the latter inferior and subject. Like, 
just that that crassly. Um, and no his teacher there, Aristotle. His, his teacher, Plato, right? He's talking about. Um, he's got this guy in his book, The Laws, who's talking about you know how different people set stuff up, and he's like, you know, some people their laws don't even talk to women at all, and he's like, this is a huge problem that you wouldn't try to regulate this secretive and crafty sex because of its weakness. It should never be left unregulated. Then he goes on to say, you see. Leaving women to do what they like is not just to lose half the battle, as it would seem. A woman's natural potential for virtue is inferior to a man's, so she's proportionately a greater danger, perhaps even twice as great. So if you don't make laws that control your women, you are shooting yourself in the foot like three times over because they are you know, less inherently yeah. uh, virtuous. Not only have you given someone a gun, you've given someone with bad aim a gun. That's the right. reasoning there, yeah. All right, so I'm going to give you a little bit more because that's Plato and Aristotle. Yeah, I was going to say, come I'm, on, bring it closer. I got, I can right, poke holes gonna, in that. Uh, let me just go straight to Philo of Alexandria. Philo, he is a contemporary of Paul. Cool. So mid-first century um, from Alexandria, so Greek, very steep philosophically. And while he's great, be- besides being a complete patriarchal sexist, he also does a whole bunch of biblical interpretation. Hmm. So why was the man made first, and what does it mean that the woman was made out of the rib of the man? Well, first of all, this had to be the case so that the woman would not be of equal dignity with the man. Hmm. Secondly, so that she wouldn't be in the same age because, you know, anybody who marries an older woman deserves great blame. Third, um, the design of God was that the husband should take care of his wife. Um, like as a part of himself, but that the woman should return him with service. So she's like servant and he's like the caretaker ruler. And again, he, he says a little bit later on the the husband, the man talking about leaving and cleaving the, the man himself delighting in his master like authority is to be respected for his pride. But the woman being the rank of a servant is praised because she agrees to live in communion. Okay, so there's that power thing. Oh, but you know why it gets even better? Because if you if you know like the arguments about uh, like Second Timothy, where you know the the woman being deceived fell into transgression from from First Timothy. Listen to this from from Philo. Why did the serpent accost the woman and not the man? Because the serpent, having formed his estimate of virtue devised a treacherous stratagem against them, but the woman was more accustomed to be deceived than the man. For the man's counsels, as well as his body, are of a masculine sort, and he can can disentangle the notions of seduction. But the mind of the woman is more effeminate, so that through her softness, we're going to come back to softness, um, she easily yields and is easily caught by the persuasions of falsehood. Okay, so I love the the way you modified your modulated your voice there during those readings. Dramatic. Oh readings. my gosh! Okay, so like you got these. So yeah. All, all right, I get. There's more. I, I hope that you could hear the echoes of the New Testament stuff. Um, I did. And, yeah. And all of that, and, and the point is, the New Testament writers are they're patriarchal too. It's just it's the air they breathe. When First Peter says, "Husbands, you know, show considerations for your wives." Um, paying honor to the woman as the weaker sex, like it means that in every way, yeah. physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, right? So now, it's, why does can that... we really quick note 
that yep. this actually gives me a bit more respect for Paul in a certain sense because compared to Philo, when Paul says, husbands, love your wives, lay down your lives for them as Christ does for the church, and you know, wives submit to your husbands in love, he, he's outlining something that, I mean, maybe for his time and place was like f- quite progressive and and certainly more egalitarian than whatever you just read me from Philo and Aristotle. Yeah, it definitely has that potential. And this is why, actually, I would say my position on both gender and sexuality is a biblical position, (laughs) Um, because I I think that there are seeds of equality that simply haven't grown to fruition in the New Testament. And it's... It's making the decision that those seeds are better representations of the gospel and the redemptive work of Jesus than the patriarchy of the surrounding culture. Like that yeah. is the that's the decision that I'm making. And now we're talking about hermeneutics. Like how am I going to make decisions to interpret the text yeah. based you know when I see conflicts or you know based on what I think is the the, the core of the the story. Can I just say I came into all of that like I said while I was doing while I was doing this work on for gender equality and then I read this book Roman homosexuality what the book says tells you in a nutshell is right who you could have sex with and how you could have sex with them depended entirely on your social rank and where they were in relationship to you so for instance right if you're a Roman citizen any Roman non-citizen is basically fair game for sex. Women, men, whatever. You know, if you go to a if you go to a brothel, there will be men, there will be women, just for whatever you want. But like Dan said earlier, if you are a Roman citizen and when you go to the brothel, you like to be on the receiving end of that um, encounter with the male, then you're in trouble, right? If you're a householder and you have sex with your slaves, that's fine. But if word gives out that that you like your slave to play the quote-unquote active role uh, and you like to be on the receiving end, that's a problem. Why? Because you are lowering yourself in your sexual act from the role of the more powerful man and taking on the the weak less dignified womanly position so that that sexism that undergirds the patriarchy uh, also then delineates what is and what isn't acceptable sexual behavior like think about some of the old testament laws about about sexuality and and women right so the idea is that a woman is property of some man, right? Her father or her husband. Therefore, right, if a woman gets raped, she has to marry her rapist. Why? Because now her father doesn't have this product that he can get rid of for a dowry or oh, yeah. nobody's going to nobody's going to take her off his hands because she's quote unquote damaged goods. Yeah, the right? value of daughters in the Old Testament law stuff is brutal. Yeah, so I just want to say again like this is not the world that we want right. really shaping our our sexual ethics. And again, if we think people are equal, right? So if you look at Roman sexual mores, like with this assumption that like this whole patriarchal hierarchy is it's enshrining a power dynamic that doesn't rightly honor the personhood of women, then where you end up is, oh my gosh, any Roman who heard who heard me say those things about the equality of men and women 
they would they would have to start building their sexual mores up you know from the ground up so here's the thought experiment let's assume that the ancient near eastern writers the people who wrote the old testament we know that they were patriarchal how do you know that they were patriarchal read the 10 commandments the 10th yeah. commandment you shall not covet your neighbor's wife right who is that written to it's it's written to men they're just thinking about men they're writing for men they've got these right so let's assume that they that they hold a similar set of hierarchies um regarding persons and, and gender and, and inherent worth, not just relative positions of power. And now let's go back and ask, is it possible that Old Testament same-sex sexual mores are reflective of the same sorts of power dynamics that are explicitly articulated in Greco-Roman culture, right? So go to go back to Leviticus 18. All right, you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Why not? Might it possibly be because that would be to inherently debase a a man by treating him in this way? Is that the problem? It might be. You know what? For for the author for the priestly writer of Leviticus, things are wrong when they don't stay in their category. Why can't you eat shrimp? Because it's neither a creepy crawly thing nor a fish. It's something in the middle, right? You've got to stay in your category, and it's it's debasing to something. It it's it's foul if it gets mixed. This is why I think keep Sodom and Gomorrah on the table. Right, because Great. what what is rape in the situation of violence against these people? It's a power play. You know, this man throws his daughters out there instead of his guests. Right, the idea is, you know, it's not a violation of hospitality because it's it's a local, and it's not as bad because it's this it's a woman rather than a man. Yeah. But the whole point of what the people are trying to do is to express superior power by physically penetrating these other people, right? So all of these things about power, um, like power and sexuality and strength and rule and leadership, all of it is mapped onto this patriarchal system structure. So having sex with somebody in the wrong sort of way is a way of, of telling them like, I rule over you. This is why people rape each other in war. Men raping men in prison to show power over. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's not Um, like this stuff is so far in the fog of ancient human history that we can't relate to it. Right. Right. So I say, keep, let's keep Sodom and Gomorrah on the table because it actually maybe is the clearest example of the reasoning behind same-sex activity as we see it throughout the, the biblical canon. Okay, tracking with you thus far, but there's more. So keep let's keep going. Do we see in Paul's letters any indication that his opposition to same-sex intercourse it shares his cultural patriarchal assumptions that yeah. um there's something inherently superior about men and inferior about women. Yeah, where's that, the evidence if yeah. we're looking for it in Paul that that like cuz it's one thing to say there's correlation, right? right. Okay, well, there are people around Paul thought this way, people before Paul thought this way, but how are you going to prove it to me that he thought this way and you're about to argue for that? I'm about to argue for that um, in two places. Um, act, you know, there's there's basically two places where where Paul comes in the picture. Romans, first of all. So in Romans, um, Romans one, uh, where Paul's talking about 
men uh, having sex with each other. Um, he says he says this line: "Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error." Now I remember being a high schooler during the the AIDS crisis, and oh, yeah. you know, so if you look at my my NIV study Bible from high school, I have STDs question mark in the margins, like receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. What is that? Oh yeah, we watched uh, Bohemian Rhapsody last night, my wife and I, and and I was surprised mm. that it's impossible for me to totally separate out. Freddie Mercury getting AIDS from Freddie Mercury being gay and having a bunch of gay sex. I don't like I don't want him to have gotten it, but it's that link was so strongly put into my brain growing up evangelical. Yeah. So I had I had Pauline proof for that. But I don't think Paul knew about that. And um what was he probably talking about? Okay, this is a, an idea that I got while reading um, Stan Stowers, he was a New Testament professor at Brown. He wrote a book called Rereading Romans. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. I think that what Paul is saying is that when you receive a penis into yourself as a man, the very act of being on the receiving end of same-sex sex is itself like the shaming penalty of um, a same-sex encounter. The penalty is not the STD. The penalty is the penis itself. It is. Yep. In an honor shame culture, yeah. to be treat to be a man treated sexually as a woman is itself seen as this inherently debasing thing. Yeah. Okay, um, so that's the one spot. Give us the other spot where you think there's evidence that this way of thinking is in fact clear in Paul. Yeah, uh, it's in the First Corinthians passage. We we talked about that Paul uses two words there. One that he kind of makes up that seems to allude to to, to Leviticus, um, arsenokoites, which means you know betting a man, and then the other is a malakos, a malakoi, and that means soft, softy. Do you know who soft is? Did you you heard it already in Philo? Did hear um, it. Women are soft. Yep. Um, Malakos is a way to slander a man for being too womanly. Hmm. All right. Sometimes people will say it's a way to refer to like the receiving partner and same sex relationships, and sometimes it is. But it's if you um, if you have too much sex, you're Malakos. Why? Because your manly reason obviously is enslaved to the passions of your body. So right. that, that makes you womanly. Enough. Right. If you pay too much attention to your um, to your appearance, if you spend too much time fixing your hair, that makes you girly. Malakos means you're girly, and girly only works as an insult if being a girl is a bad thing. Right. Um, so Paul is participating in by, – by saying that Malakoi won't inherit the kingdom of God, he's suggesting that sort of the, the cultural prejudice against women um, is something that kind of correlates with God's own sense of like who – what kind of man is fit to come into the kingdom of God? And so when yeah. first Corinthians ends with Paul telling the Corinthians, be men, be strong in, uh, in chapter 16, like that he's basically saying, yeah, there's some patriarchal norms that I think we should all live up to here. If we are going to be like, make God happy. Um, man, it's and like a cosmic I, version of you throw baseballs like a girl. It exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and which is, which is really unfortunate because, there's a lot 
in Paul's rhetoric. And, oh, by the way, Jesus was crucified, which means he died a death by penetration. So, like, there's a lot in his narrative of the cross and all this that is actually completely antithetical to patriarchy. Hmm. But, but, um, yeah, but but so here Paul in, this, but is in these himself, places. You can see Paul actually struggling with patriarchy, but when it comes to homosexuality and women and slavery, yep. he, he was not able to get past it. Right. And, and in some ways with, with women, maybe better, like, if, yeah, especially first, if, if he didn't, if he didn't write first Timothy, which I don't think he did, then, you know, then I think you, you can see a good bit of, yeah. of improvement on, uh, with gen, with yeah, women specifically. But. Okay. So let's, let's connect the dots here then. It, here's what I understand your argument. And then you tell me what I'm missing. So if Paul's rejection of, well, sticking with Paul, if Paul's rejection of homosexual sex is part and parcel of his unthinking acceptance of the patriarchal sexist norms of both his day and all 3000 years prior to his day in mm-hmm. his context. And if we reject that thinking on say women or slavery, we yep. ought to reject it for homosexuality. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. Yep. And so- and and I just want to add to that that this is also why I don't think that the church's two thousand years of history is a reliable guide on the question of same sex interactions either, right? I mean this is this is the same church grand tradition where we get yes um, masturbation is a worse sin than rape because at least rape has the potential for creating life, right? I mean the the idea yeah sex and gender stuff just has not been a strong suit of the church's theologizing yeah that, that's one of the arguments that people will give in in support of uh, the traditional view on homosexuality is hey 2000 years of pretty much unbroken agreement but you're saying yeah there's also uh, 1800 years of unbroken agreement on slavery So you guys know, I have this Patreon campaign that is ongoing. It's $5 a month. It's the way that you can support this work financially. And it includes a Facebook discussion group for patrons only. And it also includes two bonus episodes every month. And the bonus episode for the second half of February is a conversation with Seth Roberts. He is a musician from San Luis Obispo area, California. I grew up watching his bands play in the Bay Area in California, and I was a huge fan of his band, Watashiwa. He now plays in Eager Seas. They used to be called Lakes. And uh, he is also a person of faith, of Christian faith. And I wanted to talk with him about the music industry, the Christian music industry, how that affected him in early life, how he thinks about his teenage years compared with the way his daughters uh, are being raised as they get close to their teenage years. And we also talked about um, moving from evangelicalism to now that an Episcopal church that he and his wife and, and kids are at. And uh, it was a really fun conversation, really great. It was fun to reminisce. And it was also fun to uh, just get into some topics that I didn't anticipate. 
I also have put together a Spotify playlist for this episode. These are songs of Seth's that I think are particularly good. There's a link to that Spotify playlist in the show notes for this episode, as well as for the bonus episodes for those of you who are patrons. Here are some clips uh, of my conversation with Seth. Or when you get required from a church to like do an altar call or when they yeah. tell you like you have to put your lyrics up on the overhead or some bullshit. Like oh, my that. gosh. <laughs> I've never heard of the so lyrics on the uh, projector. That's new. Yeah. That's a new oh, one. Yeah. yeah, we had it all. And and like when, you know, when I got older and the other thing was like we started so young that like looking back on it, I it's like what? Like I know my parents intentions for sure. Um, but like all these other people around me, I didn't, I don't know there. And, and like, so looking back on it, there's some stuff that I'm like, yeah, that felt a little bit off or that felt like, you know, I was pretty young to be, um, I don't want to call it brainwashed in that way, but definitely like, um, very, there was, you know, there were certain circles where it was very influential on my, um, on what I, on what I think we were speaking required to be as a band you know i got i you know i i got to a place where i had to i i got so anxious about um you know trying to to really lock down these things that i think were tied to the idea that you have to have things locked down i remember seeing people as a kid being so confident that they had the world figured out and they had god figured out and they had it like pinned down to like evangelical christianity you know and and so i think i got to a point where it was like well i really do care about thinking about these things um but i know that i want to focus on my time thinking about these things or like exploring these ideas in a positive not not in like an an anxious way or like so i'm okay i think i had to kind of become okay with that i do believe like focusing on love is is like um so important to in life that's like what i believe is like most important is focusing on love and i and i think because of that you see you see so much um in all in so many different beliefs and ways of life and if you really look at people and try to understand humans through that perspective of just focusing on the love you know then uh yeah, you can see God in all kinds of different places, you know. Well, do you feel like – do you think there's still a tension? I mean, given in your current environment, both trying to pass on some faith to your daughters and in your church environment, do you feel that there's any tension between saying, I I practice this, but I don't buy the exclusivity claims? Do you think that if you were honest about that, that it would be harder or is have you found a community where everyone's like, oh, Seth, totally, I found we a agree. Different community, yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I, I not Seth. Oh, totally, we agree. But oh, Seth, we I love you. Hmm. <laughs> no matter what you believe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One other thing about those exclusive patron-only episodes, you don't have to go on patreon.com to listen to them or listen to them in a web browser. Actually, when you sign up to be a patron, you get an RSS feed. That's just a fancy word for basically the feed that brings podcast episodes to your app. 
you can just put that into your podcast app, whichever one you listen to. It'll work on all of them, and they will show up on your phone or whatever device you use, just like this podcast does. Also, the You Have Permission Facebook group is for patrons only, and it is really getting awesome in there. People are starting to share resources and and kind of crowdsource stuff that they're going through. I'm really pleased to be a part of that. If you'd like to become a patron, it starts at $5 a month. You have permissionpod.com, click become a patron, or patreon.com slash dancoke. Links to both of those are in the show notes. Back to our conversation with the good doctor, Daniel Kirk. You mentioned earlier that you were going to go through Hayes's uh, sort of three main things that he does in his book, Moral Vision of the New Testament. He does cross community and vision. Is that right? Uh, new creation. New creation. And he goes through all, any topic he's discussing. He discusses all kinds mm-hmm. of topics. Right. So he does this with homosexuality. And we've sort of already heard what he came to. But you have another way of using that same tool, that triune yeah. tool. So what what do you find when you apply those three lenses to what we've just talked about. When Richard Hayes is talking about community as a a paradigm for New Testament ethics, what he's saying is across the whole New Testament, the the fact of an identity of the people of God, its preservation, purity, and composition is something that the ethics of of the New Testament are concerned about. And that fact of God creating a community, it becomes a, a lens for rereading and re-understanding um, scripture and what the, what the ethical imperatives are for the people of God. So this is kind of actually, for people who are familiar with the Wesleyan quadrilateral, quadrilateral which is scripture, reason, experience, and tradition, somewhere between the four, this is where you find the truth, his community category is kind of a merging of tradition and experience. It's like as the church is the church and goes through time uh, and experiences things individually and corporately, that turns into a tradition. And that, that as that that goes, we, we should look at that and we should look at the the intermingling of those two for clues as to what the Holy Spirit is up to. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. This is what I what what I discover with community, and I mean, it can start with something as small as right. I'm having a a conversation with um, a senior colleague back when I was um, at a school that was not affirming, and we were having a debate about this in our conversation. And he's like, "Well, you know, in my homosexual sisters and brothers, blah 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 blah. My homosexual sisters and brothers, blah blah blah." It's like, okay, so hold on. So you've called them sisters and brothers, so they're children of God, yes, and part of the family of God, yes. So. That means presumably that they're going to be heirs of the kingdom of God. I mean, if you're calling them sisters and brothers, First Corinthians 6, the whole point is who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's what, that's what that list, that's what Paul says about that list in First Corinthians 6. So my point is, if you are willing to say that a gay person in a partnered relationship, is your brother or sister in Christ, like Hayes is, then the com- the composition of the community of believers has become an interpretative fact that has you in pointed disagreement with Paul already. 
Paul says, such were some of you, right? But, but you're not anymore because you're going to be heirs of the kingdom of God. But if, if we're willing to say that people who are still there are, in fact, our sisters and brothers and heirs of the kingdom, even as that, then we've already disagreed with Paul. And this starts getting us into, right, Hayes is huge on the community as um, as an interpretive key for reading scripture, right? He has this whole book on Paul where his argument is that Paul has a, what he calls an ecclesiotelic hermeneutic, which means that the scripture is moving in the direction of the community that is actually formed around the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. So what happens when we're sitting here in a community of people and people who show just as much evidence of being empowered and gifted by the Spirit, as I do, are in partnered gay relationships. And so this community piece takes me right to Acts 10. We've, we talked about that before. Acts 10, where what do you have? You've got Peter, and he's sitting there having a dream, and in the dream, God says, kill and eat all this stuff that Scripture says you're not allowed to eat. And It says it Peter's pretty black and white. Yeah, and Peter says, never, Lord. But the response is great. What the voice from heaven says, it doesn't say, hey, that that was never actually the crap I cared about. Don't worry about it. What the, what the divine voice says is, what I have purified, don't you make common, right? The idea is that God has done something here. He's instituted a change, and it's about the dietary restrictions, but it's actually about God embracing the Gentiles. So Peter goes and he preaches to Cornelius and the spirit falls on them. And it's like, whoa, God showed me that, you know, I shouldn't reject these people just because, you know, I used to think they were unclean. I think that's exactly the moment that the church is in now. Well, for the best that the best that the church could see and know for the cultures we were in for a couple thousand years, we were trying to be faithful. And now we have this new fact, which is partnered gay people openly following Jesus in our midst, which for various sociological reasons has not been possible before the 20th century. The question for us is, what does that fact mean? And I think that that fact means, oh, wow, we need to go back and re-understand what God was up to in this stuff before and and re-understand the significance of the the ground leveling work of the gospel, especially around issues of gender, because it transforms what we say about sex. So I think when you dive into the community question and really take stock of the community as, as a theologically significant fact, which it always is, whether we acknowledge it or not, the community is a theologically significant fact impacting our biblical interpretation. I think we have to do that with the fact that our Gay brothers and sisters are with us following Jesus, and we just have to humbly say, we can't do what Paul said anymore, precisely because Paul was right when he wrote Galatians and said, if you've got the Abba Father spirit, don't you dare let anyone else tell you you've got to do something else to be a fully functioning member of this body. Okay, so now we're moving to the cross. And so what does Hayes mean when he says, I'm going to use the cross as a lens through which to look at the New Testament? He means both that you know the cross does have some sort of atoning or like an image of the judgment of God on human sin, and that as an as an ethical um, as an ethical paradigm, the cross transforms the ethics of the people of God. So, like in the Gospels, where Jesus says, "Take up your cross and follow me," um, there there's this kind of 
anti anti power um, polemic that the cross becomes a symbol of, um, and you see it also in Paul where he's he talks about the weakness and the foolishness of the cross and how that's embodied, and Hayes even reads Revelation as sort of an anti violence um, cruciform sort of thing, which. Um, that gets, that's a little bit creative. Um, but so the, the point with the cross is it's not just about like what God did for us, but the way that it is this transformative, ups, really upside down power sort of way of life um, for the people of well, God. So I can already imagine where you're going with this. The fact that you've now flipped power structures on their head and God willingly takes the place of lower power, though yeah. God, by all rights, has all the power. And yeah. so – I mean, I, we could almost fill this in for you, but go ahead and tell us how you're going to apply that to the uh, patriarchy. Sure. I mean, uh, it, it, the cross is the complete dis- – like to, to proclaim the cross as the way that God the, – the God who's all-powerful tra- transforms the world, it, it completely turns the patriarchy on its head. To say that the person who's conquered is the one who, who now rules, to say that the one who is penetrated, the one who is shamed rather than honored, um, to say that you know, the one who refused to strike back, like to say that there's strength in this death, like all of those things, like Jesus is like in his crucifixion is a completely emasculating way to demonstrate the dominance of Rome. And so to, to hold that up as the, the paradigm of power just completely um, demolishes uh, the whole the whole patriarchy power system. But but see, but here's the thing when it comes to and then when it comes to ethics, right? Um, this is where it gets dicey because there's this call like take up your cross and follow me. Um, so how is that going to work out when you have a minority community that's being called to like a sexual ethic? And this is what I do for myself. This is how I, in my own internal dialogue, think about the cross as as an ethical guide. In any given situation, a question I ask myself is this. Am I, in this context, willingly laying down my power and life so that somebody else can find a power in life that they wouldn't already have? In other words, am I playing the part of the crucified Christ? Or in this context, am I demanding that somebody else lay down their life either to keep me comfortable, to give me more position so I can attain for my own, or so that I can sit on the sidelines and watch? Um, in other words, am I playing the role of the crucifying centurion? And where I think Hayes um, – uh, where I, I think Hayes uh, just kind of dances a little bit here is he goes he goes for the atonement stuff right like you know God you know God is you know pays for uh, all of our sin and that kind of stuff he doesn't and 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 he goes with yeah and cross bearing is hard work and we we're all called to do it in certain places but here's the deal like if I as a you know a straight white person who's let's just take a random thing that could be true of somebody like sits in an, an endowed professorship at Duke University and telling somebody else who's like a sexual minority, sorry, you can't do that thing, i.e. engage in sexual acts, which guess what I get to do because I'm doing it the right way in, in the right – like that's playing the part of the centurion. Uh, and that's that's exactly what I think like the story should upend. Um, I think that the power endemic in those – 
um, in those sexual mores just doesn't allow for that uh, for that call in the story. I appreciate the poetic power of you turning Hayes's interpretive moves on himself as an endowed tenured professor. But I will just go on the record and say I don't like that argument style in general. I Aww. think that people I think that biblical scholars got a biblical scholar. They got to do their thing and we got to let them do it. And we can okay. have arguments. I, I think you're presenting, as you know, a very good argument against him. But I don't like uh, and I, I have a little bit of not pushback, but I have some questions for you about this that we'll get to right. towards the end. I, I I just want to be on the record saying I don't like that argument. No offense, Daniel. Uh, I, I I think he, I'm not offended. I'm I'm hurt. But you're hurt, but not offended. Yeah, yeah. So um, that's fine. Okay. So then uh, the last one is new creation. So what's he doing with new creation as a lens? Um, yeah, new creation is um, ways in which the the community of believers is really called like what sanctification is is taking hold of like what's what's coming what lies ahead in the age to come and bringing it to bear on the present right it's the already okay. not yet eschatology and trying to make us into like what we know the the age to come so in terms be. of as a lens if if we have a clear vision from scripture or from experience or uh tradition or reason of oh this is the kind of end that god has in mind for the universe this is the goal to which god is bringing all things then we ought to use that as a way to identify stuff we believe now. Right. And so like he does a lot uh, with uh, war and peace. So like if we know that the, and we believe that the end of the story is that the swords are going to be, you know, um, beaten into plowshares, then like pursuing peace and creating communities of peace and having finding ways to bring peace to conflict here and now like that is bringing new creation to bear on the present yeah that's great Um, okay so now you want to use this to look at at this stuff again so how do you use the new creation lens to think about this yeah question um so i want to start with Richard Hayes himself in his Galatians commentary, Galatians 3.28, you've been baptized into Christ in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. So male and female. Richard Hayes in his Galatians commentary um, argues what other people have said as well, that Paul switches the cadence from either or to male and female in order to echo Genesis 1. Right. Male and female, he created them. Right. Right. Male and female, God created them. Um, So, and then he, you know, so he's using this to argue for gender equality. Um, And, but it's, it's a new creation move. It's to say that this new humanity that's being created in Christ no longer has this male and female thing. And Hayes is arguing for it sort of as a a differentiated hierarchy, you know, because he wants, he's he's arguing for the the equality point. Um, But you just said no longer male and female, like that first creation's putting humans into this this gender binary isn't what constitutes our identity in the church as it's the harbinger of new creation. Like once you've said that, how can you tell people that they can only have sex as male and female? Like mm. it doesn't work. And okay, and here's the other thing. Like if we want to talk new creation, um 
the you know the other places where people sometimes go with like sex and new creation you know you've got um the the question to jesus about resurrection right i was gonna bring that up yeah yeah like well jesus you know this woman had a husband he died um moses said that her husband had to take her and raise up children so he did then seven brothers had her they all died in the in the new in the resurrection in in the restoration of all things whose husband will she be for all seven of them had her um notice first of all the patriarchal assumption that you to have a woman is both a sexual reality and a a transactional reality um and jesus is like you don't understand you don't know the scriptures of the power of god and he's like well in the new creation people aren't going to marry and be given in marriage um so it that's it this is a weird one right where um well okay most hilarious moment in any commentary ever. Commentaries are not known for their humor. Not especially. Joel, Joel Marcus, Anchor Bible Commentary, Volume 2 on Mark Chapter 12. Quote, Jesus appears to be suggesting that in the age to come, there will not be sex. And one might be tempted to ask, with a heaven like that, what further need would there be for hell? All right. <laughs> so... A just question from Joel Marcus. Um, And so anyway, I mean, that's just to say that. But that's so interesting because I always think of this passage as like my friend Joey, who's on the Bad Christian podcast. He loves to talk about how much sex he's going to have in heaven. And and so I tend to think of it as like a rebut to his obsession with heaven sex. But now having just had this conversation with you, I'm also thinking about marriage and being given in marriage through the concept of ownership and Mm, uh, service and power. And like now I would say, and I hope this is true that my wife being married to me does not mean that I have ownership over her or power over her. Uh, I, I try to respect her. You know, we have a egalitarian relationship, but certainly to the woman in that story who's being handed off against her will to the next brother, the next brother, the next brother, or probably most people getting married in Paul's day, if you could accurately poll the women and get their real reactions, they're not too pumped about that. And yep. it's a it's a it's a liberating message of like, no, in the kingdom, like you don't have that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, is which is complicated because marriage is also so beautiful and sanctifying. You know, it's that's hard, but there is that yeah. part of it. Yeah. I mean, so this is where I think that the new creation the um, destruction of the gender hierarchy. I think because Hayes is right about gender equality in the church, new creation doesn't allow for perpetuation of first cre- first creation hierarchies um, in in sexuality. And it's only by hierarchy that you end up eliminating you know, the the potential for for same sex. So um, for that, and okay, here's one more thing about new creation. And this was something that somebody said at a conference, and like I had never thought about it, and it was the most. It's it just it lodged in my brain. He's like, look, throughout the whole Old Testament. Having children is always talked about as the reason, like with sex and marriage, that's always what it's talking about. In the early church from the second century on, like it's like the only reason to have sex is because you're having children. Guess what's never talked about in conjunction with sex in the New Testament? Having children. Children. Why? Because new creation. People thought that Jesus was going to come back so soon, right? Soon, so there's right. this 
there's this beginning of a reimagining about what sex is good for uh, and and what it means and and how to hold that in in terms of this kind of eschatological tension tension of like the end is right on us that's what eschato- eschatology means um, and and so Paul says yeah have sex so that your body doesn't burn with passion you know so it doesn't yeah. doesn't store up yeah. like that's it you know so um, it's a like. Here's another thing, like if to to start, like take a white out to church history. The New Testament never talks about having children. So if we're going to talk about like the continuity of Jesus and the apostles and the church's testimony about sex, take white out to everything that that says sex is about having kids from the tradition and start to rebuild your theology. Which, by the way, every Protestant has to do anyway because we affirm the use of both birth control, um, mm. like. Protestants have no pot to piss in when it comes to like saying we agree with the church because we use birth control and like having kids has been like the the only reason for having sex for so many of the church fathers like huh, there's so much rework that has to be there's done. There's another that's another example of discontinuity in church tradition especially yes. as Protestants. Yeah. 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 You can't just say because you have the same conclusion that the guy before you had that you actually agree with them or that you're perpetuating the church tradition. I think that's actually one of the most lazy arguments of the um the modern conservative, especially modern conservative Protestant um, or modern Catholic who thinks that birth control is okay or, or what have you. Yeah. We're going to do a lightning round here. I've got a bunch of things. I'm going to give you one to two minutes to answer them and we'll get through as much of it as we can. All right. So first off, here is a very common concern. And, and some of these are not going to be hard, so you can just just. Re- but I w- I want to get to them now with this thinking. The Bible defines marriage as between a man and a woman. What's your response to that? The Bible doesn't have a definition of marriage. We create a definition of marriage based on things that we've seen. Jesus doesn't challenge the common view of homosexuality from the Old Testament. Therefore, Jesus is seen to be tacitly implicitly co-signing on that view. I actually think that Jesus probably does agree with the Old Testament view. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the person. Jesus, the first century Jewish human. Um, the reason why Jesus didn't talk about it probably was because he was dealing with Jews his whole life, and they all agreed about this. Um, Paul had to deal with it because he was dealing with Gentiles, and there was diversity. Um, but yeah, I think that Jesus, prob- Jesus, the first century human, probably um, agreed with that, just like Jesus, the first century human, didn't know that if you washed your hands, um, half the diseases he had to cure wouldn't have ever been caught in the first place. Right. Uh, There is a concern that I have with a lot of liberal thinking, uh, sociopolitically, etc., that everything is about power relationships, and I think that sometimes that can be reductive. Power Mm. is not always bad. Sometimes power is good, and although I recognize the the cogency of your argument, is your argument possibly guilty of – Narrowly, narrowly looking at everything in the first century as being, and in the Old Testament as being about power, when actually there's a lot more going on. Um, in this case, 
I don't think so, um, because it's my. I don't think my argument is actually narrowly about power, although power dynamics certainly help. Um, because patriarchy, part of what I've tried to argue is that patriarchy is not just about power; it's about a holistic system of um, uh, antitheses about things that were assumed to be superior and inferior, including like mental acuity and rational reasoning skills and bodily strength and um, ability to control your emotions and emotions themselves and, um, you know, whether you won a war or, I mean, that that, that would be more of a power thing. But, uh, you know, part of what I'm suggesting is that um, this honor-shame culture with all of its um, rankings of things as superior and inferior. Yet power runs through it, and it does uphold a certain power structure. Um, but there's it's it's this multifaceted reality, and it's it's precisely in recognizing all of those facets that you get this coherent picture of what sex was in the ancient world, and you can start to get um, little little snippets of maybe increased understanding of even the data that's on the table. So that's not my sense of my position. Is this a a kind of a newfangled reading? A lot of newfangled readings of scripture, like, for instance, rapture theology, or as you mentioned, some strains of complementarian, non-egalitarian thinking are are novel ways of reading the text. Um, Should we be suspicious of this as one among many novel ways of reading the text that uh, we should give this some more time to see if it bears fruit before we dive in. Mm. But, you know, I think everything takes time to, to kind of get your head around. And I would say, um, like my, what I would commend to you would be just go, don't read what, you don't have to read what scholars say about it, but if you can find a bunch of ancient sources about re- gender relationships, just go read them. Um, I would say read read Roman homosexuality. It's not about the Bible. It's not trying to argue for you know inclusion of gay people in anything. It's just explaining how if you're a first century Roman, this is how you think about sex, or not just first century, but if you're if you're in the Roman Empire or Roman Republic, this is how you're thinking about sex. Um, like I think that those are just those are those are tools that I would commend to everybody and and just try it on and and walk around in it. Honestly, like if I can convince you in an hour that I'm right, somebody else can convince you in 45 minutes that I'm wrong. So so do take your time, but I would say this approach is this is his, this is historical critical exegesis. This is what everybody claims they're doing right. when they put yeah. their finger on the text and say this is what it means. And I'm asking I'm asking the question, might it mean and it not just this is a bad thing, but might it mean or might it be showing us this is a bad thing because, you know, men are better than women. And if so, I I think it it, it really presses that question, like, are we going to really be willing to embrace equality um, as far as it takes us? And not just because we're Americans, but because we're in Christ. And in Christ Jesus, there's no longer Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. <clears throat> Let's say we are convinced by your argument, but we still think, you know what? I got to take what Paul says. Maybe he was patriarchal and maybe people are supposed to be patriarchal. If we were to take that stance, hypothetically, what are the other things that Paul says 
specific, specifically about women or slavery that we would then also need to take at face value to be consistent. We got to bring back the head coverings. Yeah. Um, we got to um, we got to get rid of divorce again. I mean, unless there's like abandonment or, or something. Yeah. Um, we got to. Um, yeah, we got to tell slaves to stop being so uppity. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, um, it's a it's an honest, open question whether people who are working on those like to end slave trafficking and stuff, sex trafficking, yeah, like that's would Paul be into that? No. Um, not not into the he wouldn't think that it's an okay thing to be doing, but you know, but if you're a, if you're trafficked in slave, you can get your freedom fine. If not, whatever. Um, Paul be a little bit more whatever about that, uh, and maybe you think that that's a little bit of a misplaced passion. Um, yeah, I, there's there would be other yeah some other maybe some other challenges not not coming right to mind. Oh yeah. Um, probably, um, women would need to, um, really have their dad's permission, uh, to get married. That would, that would probably be a thing. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some examples. This is a real worry of mine and uh, not a devil's advocate question. Uh, I feel very attached to monogamy. Um, mm. so I have, I agree with your argument about, uh, same sex relationships. Um, but I worry that I will have shakier ground to stand on for my very strong conviction that monogamy is the most loving way for people to be together uh, sexually and relationally. So uh, a- a- is my ground weaker, I guess, is my question. I just want to say, why do you think that agreeing with the Bible gives you strong ground to oppose polygamy <laughs> or polyamory? Uh, wait, sorry. Say that again. Uh, why does why, why would you think that like standing by the Bible in any sort of traditional way would give you strong ground for opposing, you know, for enforcing monogamy? Oh, I see. Because the Bible is so full of polygamy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on, you know. The church is the bride of Christ, but how many people is that? Okay, so you're um, just so <laughs> you're sort of in a silly way saying, "Look, your arguments for monogamy are not going to come from the text; they're going to come elsewhere anyway." Yeah, th- yes. Um, I so I, I mean, I don't think that I was being silly, uh, but no, no, you're you're right. That's that's exactly what I was saying. Uh, that uh, I think that our, um, I think that our social convention is the the strongest. Um, this the strongest force uh, for monogamy right now, uh, and uh, I think that you could make some arguments about covenant faithfulness that are um, that would be you kind of biblically kind of Jesus centered arguments for monogamy, but it might also be that um, we just need to take a step back and maybe realize that some of the some of the ways that we've been or that we haven't carefully thought about it or um that uh yeah some of the ways that we thought were compelling arguments maybe mm, don't hold up quite as well um and and then maybe we would also have to be willing to you know do some honest research into what is actually the most life-giving sort of partnership that leads to flourishing of people um and you asking being willing to ask that question if you know the fact that god just made two people at the very beginning isn't going to be the the end all to that conversation so um yeah those are some initial thoughts i mean i'd be curious like what 
what are the arguments that you think you might have without becoming affirming or without becoming affirming in the way that I'm suggesting it that you think you lose um, if you become LGBT affirming as a Christian? I don't, I don't actually have uh, an answer to that. I, I have not personally, f- now having been affirming for some time, I have not come across uh, a good argument against monogamy, um, at least against my own moral intuitions on it. But it's just the kind of thing that I think about and I imagine other people have thought about it as well. Yeah. Um, there is a worry that though the patriarchy and sexism are bad – that sometimes feminist thought or far, you know, extreme feminism and other kinds of sort of secular humanist thought lead to basically just an anything goes autonomy based ethic where mm, it's like yeah. the only thing that matters really is that people can do whatever they prefer to do with no constraints. And in that sense, you could see that kind of argument leading to incest is fine, anything goes, polyamory, whatever the hell you want to do. Um, do you think that your argument uh, could suffer from that, or do you think it's a totally distinct argument? Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about the the argument to include LGBT people, and where this conversation has not gone, and what I think has been a a general lapse in um, progressive or inclusive circles is we haven't talked about sexual ethics at all. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about inclusion, right? We've, we've talked about why people might engage sexually with people of the same sex, but we haven't talked about under what, you know, parameters is any right. sex good or bad. Right. And we haven't talked I, about consent or anything like that. Right. right. So I, I would say that I think that that is a question that we need to do some serious work on. Um, and yeah. that what I've said right now is, is liable to that. Um, just like saying really only sex between men and women is okay. Like, um, that's also liable to, because then you have people ex- saying things like you, a husband can't rape their wife. Exactly. Right? That's a, that's a ethically very problematic statement that comes from the opposite side. Right. Yep. Right. So, so yes, it's liable to it, but I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a, um, uh, I don't think it's a, some sort of death knell. It just means now that's actually we've actually this is actually the easy part. Now we have to do the hard work of talking about what is what is just sex, what is righteous sex. Um and actually there's a book called Just Sex by Margaret Farley. It's a little bit tough sledding to read, but she has a 1-hour YouTube video where she outlines her position that is very much worth watching. It's again, folks might want to see more, um but it's a really great starting point for thinking about um, what what faithful uh, sex as the people of God might might look like. I'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, three more rapid-fire questions, and then we're done, Daniel, with this All right. marathon session. Number one, can Christians at various stages, must they agree with you and I? Can they withhold judgment? Are there church settings where it would be better for pastoral staff to not make this their primary issue for the sake of allowing a community to change its mind collectively over time if it's going to. I mean, are we are we saying people must do this or are we saying, hey, you have permission to do this and this is what we think, uh, but go at your own speed? I think there's wisdom that give taking people through process. And as I say that, you also have to understand that for LGBT people, like 
this is like I don't know why I don't know why gay people were still in my church when it was not affirming, um, and they were there, and we went through a process of becoming affirming. Like yeah. I just I just consider that their gift to their patient gift to us, um, and and I think I know that I had to go through a long process to change my mind. And as much as I would like the result of everybody being inclusive and included as rapidly as possible. I think that there is wisdom in leading people through a process and especially if you can if you're if you really are on a process and you're not just stalling. All right, I'm talking to you right. Enneagram 6s, don't just stall forever. Um, you know, you really need to like if you are enacting a process and you're starting to talk about sexuality and deconstruct your everybody's what everybody thinks their presuppositions are and what they really are. Like if you're in that process, you know, I think it's going to take time. Oh, by the way, you will lose members and money and you're going to have to fire half your staff. That will happen. I'm sorry. Um, and you need to be able to say to your LGBT people, I'm for you. I agree with you. I would marry you. Um, you might not want to sit here through this very difficult and painful process. And I will bless you if you need to go someplace to be safe. Um, but yeah, so you got to figure out how you can care for these people and tell them that you affirm all of who they are while helping people um, into that process. But if we don't have people who are in process, it's just going to increase the polarization and we'll lose more people along the way. So uh, yeah, I'm all for good process, although that's also idealistic because we're going to lose a lot anyway. What would you say to a conservative listener of this show who is skeptical about this entire conversation, uh, but understands that you've thought about this and I've thought about this and, you know, how, what would you, what would you want to say to address them? Hmm. I would want to say, I, first of all, I really do think that most of us that I don't know anybody personally who holds the the biblical position on gender and sex because we we agree to this fundamental equality between men and women and I think that's critical um, and I I just encourage you to keep wrestling with that um, and yeah what what that means um, in a lot of ways um, I would also say you know I've I've poo pooed the the church tradition in a number of ways today and I've kind of done it on purpose because I I don't think it's helpful here but the other thing I would want to say is like listen um listen to the LGBT people who are like coming out of the church and who've grown up in the church yes there will be some who are just thankful for being kept on the straight and narrow but it's destroying people and even the people who are you know maintaining their celibacy it's destroying them too. And I think that the pastoral question of like, is this the life that God in Christ like wants to give to people is an important question to ask. And like, I don't, I don't start my LGBT inclusion reasoning on suicide statistics, but like literally if something that we're saying in the name of God is causing people to kill themselves Jesus says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, that just doesn't smell like Jesus to me. Last question. Uh, if someone's listening to this and they are gay, lesbian, queer, maybe they don't know that. Maybe they, Or maybe they have only known that for a little while. Maybe they know it for a long time. Maybe they're celibate. Maybe they're not. 
but this reasoning is new to them. What would you say to that listener? God loves you. <laughs> That's the first thing I want to say to like every LGBT person in the church is you're God's beloved child and like screw anything you've heard or that has told you made you think otherwise in your life. You've heard too much uh, of that. So first of all, Jesus loves you. Um, God loves you in Christ. Um, you're his beloved child. Um, then if this kind of reasoning is new to you, um, welcome. Um, here's the thing. There's, there's a lot of different ways to get at LGBT inclusion. There are people like Matthew Vines, who's written a book, God and the Gay Christian, and he's taken a much more, almost an errantist kind of view. Like the Bible, the Bible doesn't say anything against this, this thing that we're doing now. Um, and read that book and it might be helpful to you. It might be helpful to you for a time. It might be, it might be all you need. Um, but you know, maybe you're up against some of these passages and you're like, mm, I don't think so. Uh, and then I'd invite you to read like James Brownson's book. I forget what it's called. Um, but James Brownson, he's a, he's a professor at Holland, um, in Holland, Michigan at uh, Western Seminary. Uh, he has a book that's a lot more nuanced and that, that talks about some other interpretive things. And he also talks about patriarchy and power. Um, but he has a lot of other arguments that some creative that I don't necessarily buy some that are really great, but it's a, it's another thing to do. I would just say like, I think that for you find like it may be new, but maybe, maybe this is the thing you need to, to start digging into, to cultivating peace with God and who you are uh, and your identity as God's child and as gay. And if so, like start with Brownson's book, follow his footnotes, um, you know, um, search me on the internet, see if I, if I can help put you onto some things and, um, just keep, keep, strengthening that muscle. Um, but again, there's other resources. There's so many resources now and, you know, something more like vines might be helpful to you as well. And if that's all you need, that's great. Like if you just can't, don't want to get into this other thing. So like, I'm, I'm not possessive of ways of being affirming. I'm possessive of LGBT people knowing that they're God's children and can do whatever God's spirit has empowered them to do. Well, that was a bit of a slog for some of us, I'm sure. There's a lot of content. It's a long episode. Don't feel bad uh, if it took you multiple sittings. And don't feel bad if you want to go back and listen to it again in the future to absorb some of this. Daniel packed a lot in there. It's basically a book-length argument that he did in under two hours. These episodes are intended to be resources, especially this one. So please share them, even with people who might disagree with you, friends, pastors, parents. I'd love to know how those conversations are going. Please email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com. I also want to know what you'd love me to cover, uh, who you'd like me to interview, all of that. Again, there's the Patreon. You get two bonus episodes a month and access to the Facebook group, patreon.com slash Coke. And... Uh, There's some cool stuff in the show notes here from this episode. There is a clip from 60 Minutes with uh, Margaret Farley. There is a link to James Brownson's book. And there are links to Daniel's Twitter and Facebook. And so check those out. And we'll see you next week. Thank you so much.